fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help to unite our nation. The cry for freedom as only sport can do. Pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, nobody's, nobody's calling. Nobody, 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 nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How you doing today, man? I'm doing pretty pretty well, all, all things considered today. Got a little bit of rest this weekend and looking forward to talking about and hearing about what's been on your mind. But how about you? Yeah, doing all right. I'm happy to be back doing this. It's been a minute. We've had a little bit of a summer hiatus. Um, so happy to be back chatting with you, man. Yeah, same. Yeah, so what, uh, uh, have you been watching anything? Anything on your mind? Have I been watching anything? I, that's an interesting question. I This isn't one of my topics I wanted to bring up, and I don't know if you want to maybe give a little introduction on what we're doing this week, but um, I have not been watching that much live sports, and I don't know if that's a carryover from the last several months and I, I'm curious if you're watching live sports yeah so uh, just as a precursor here I'll say that what we're doing this week is uh, we're essentially just going to catch up uh, share three things each that we're thinking about here um, and kind of see uh, have a conversation about it so very casual this week uh, no main theme but I'm sure we'll deal with our normal themes here um but yeah, I so I have found that there are two things that I am watching live. Um, one of which this week has been the Tour de France, which I'll get into more later. But uh, that's been really nice. And then I am doing my disc golf stuff still, which is not live, but you know as live as right. um, as it can be. The but NBA stuff, I think I'll probably try and watch some of the finals live, but um, I find myself not uh, not as I'm still paying a lot of attention to it. I'm just not finding the need to watch it live. Yeah. So actually that's interesting that even speaking of disc golf, I need to back up and admit that I have been watching sports still. It's just, I don't watch them when they air. I um, watch them recorded or on YouTube or somewhere else where I can fast forward. Hmm. Um, So I think I've mentioned it before, but I've gotten to where I can knock out of, a, a round of a golf tournament in like an hour or so, maybe even less. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's something, but I think maybe I'll watch like five or six minutes of an NBA game and kind of lose interest. Um, I don't know what that is. I, I guess I'm more interested in the stories coming out of the NBA as opposed to actual basketball right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if NBA is on your list, but I, I have a prediction that it is. Is it? Oh, it most definitely is. How could it not be, given what's been going on? I know. Once I started prepping for this, I was the one that suggested we do three big things. And then I was like, we could have an eight-episode podcast on what's happened in the NBA in the last two weeks. So uh, do you want to get into it? What's your What's the first thing on your list? Yeah. So um, well, why, don't we just, why don't we jump into the NBA stuff here? Um, okay. Because I'm guessing that's on your list as well. Um, it is. Uh, so, 
you know, I'm just fascinated by everything that's happened with the NBA right now, both from a story perspective, like uh, from a basketball story perspective and like the weirdness of playoffs with no home court advantage, um, the total like up in the airness of the playoffs that anything seems possible right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, of course, this this massive uh, strike and the ramifications of that uh, are still pretty huge. I, I'm intrigued to see kind of what the long-term ramifications of it are. Um, mm-hmm. And if there's a turnover into other sports, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued – uh, you know, basketball is perhaps the one most ready to deal with this. We saw in the MLS that one of the owners is going to be stepping down due to his response to this kind of stuff. So that's, you know, that's a real tangible thing. I'll be intrigued to see how tangible the results of this will be, but also um, just, I, I'm intrigued to follow my own reaction to it in some ways and, and uh, how I find uh, understanding and appreciate all aspects of kind of what's happened with them. Yeah. I'm wondering if it would be helpful to just give a little bit of background about what happened. Yeah. Do you want to, do you, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear how you'll encapsulate if you're willing to do that. Yeah, sure. I, I can attempt it. So of course the NBA has been doing so many unprecedented things in regard to COVID and to taking social justice stances, political stances. And it culminated or maybe built up to uh, this past week with the shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I believe it, I don't know the exact timeline. Maybe it was that night or the next night or a couple nights after, but the Milwaukee Bucks were supposed to play a playoff game and essentially decided as a team that they weren't going to play the game and so they didn't take the floor. And that may be a really simple encapsulation of it, but I think what is significant and worth talking about is how massive of a move that was and kind of seemingly from my perspective was a literal small gesture, just not walking out onto the court to play a game, but to do it in the context that it happened in the bubble and to do it during the playoffs and to do it as a team and to have it lead to several other teams doing the same and have it lead to MLS teams and MLB teams and WNBA teams also doing the same. And, um, oh, I forgot the tennis player's name that didn't play. And so it had ripple effects into other leagues, but I think the ripple effects are actually quite massive. And I, I, too, like you, I think one of the questions here is, To what extent is it going to lead to systematic change? I don't know, but I think it already stands out quite a bit just for the fact that it's pretty unprecedented, that level of withholding labor. And so that's where I think when you start to add the layers of socioeconomics and race uh, to the strike or the boycott of not going out on the court in that immediate of a situation is pretty significant, I think. And I think there's plenty to talk about in other ways to tell that story as well, obviously. 
Yeah, I think it's uh, that's a good encapsulation of it, and I think it um, is stands out as uh, what I think we'll look at as a watershed moment of you know we've been talking about player power in the NBA in a different context for a long time, but I think we're you know this will stand out as a moment when we saw that um, you know we've seen other leagues try and do replacement players, and it's not worked particularly well, but the NBA in particular cannot function without its stars participating. Right. Um, and so I, uh, I think it's an incredibly powerful statement to show uh, an environment in which uh, individuals of color have power and are using that power productively. And uh, it's just a phenomenal instance of uh, what I hope will be uh, an example and something that will show as soft power for many, many years to come. Yeah. And I guess we should point out too, that as things unfolded throughout the following days, it became apparent like is true in any social protest or political protest that not everyone was behind it and not everyone knew what to do afterward. And not everyone was was in agreement on uh, how it should be spoken of, how its meaning should be applied to it. And I think the one step that was an attempt to kind of make it meaningful as it relates to actually taking action was one that players seemed adamant in their negotiations with the league and owners to say that, we need action or we want to see action that's actually going to address systemic change or systemic racism. And the plan was to open up the arenas that aren't being used for polling places. And as I've understood or just started to understand, I actually just came across it this morning that apparently a lot of those arenas were already planning to do that. And a few of the requests have either been denied or kind of held up. Uh, so it's getting messy. Uh, that initial moment of boycott was quite significant and quite dramatic and had a, a pretty massive effect, I think. It's also true that now it's getting messy. And so that seems like a layer to throw out there here at the start of kind of unpacking what all of this is. Well, yeah, I think that the other aspect that comes down, um, so I think what we saw at the end of the day and the argument, you know, there was a there was a time, probably 24 hours, where I think a lot of folks didn't think that there was going to be the rest of the playoffs. Right. There was no action that was going to result in um, folks going back. Uh, but I think that what we saw in the end, which is, I think, and a really, really important thing for us to keep in mind throughout all of our conversations about sports, but uh, particularly in this context, uh, it came back to, or it seemed to come back to people, uh, these athletes, talking about how they're not they're not playing for the owners they're not playing for the folks that they put in all this effort uh for themselves um and for their team and so that they want to see the results of that for their team and for themselves which i find to be um a really compelling thing and different from when i think about um strikes in other places so you know if we think about coal miners or we think about factory workers, there's very few of those individuals who um, 
whose identity and work is is as important to them as these NBA basketball players are. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting dynamic. So in some ways, you know, even risking the season being gone was a, a much bigger thing than I think we could have acknowledged, but also seeing um, uh, the complicated nature of who is in charge and what the stakes are and, what everybody wants to see out of these things, I, I think is really interesting and important to to kind of keep in mind throughout. I think I have a, a central question that I think there's maybe not a straight answer to because to answer it would necessitate digging into so many complexities. But even with the fame and power that these players have right now, does their does their power equate at all to the power of the owners? Truly, uh, like in in a global sense, in a national sense, no. Yeah, I mean that's the bottom line. Yeah, and so that's what I I don't know. I I am sure the owners were a little bit worried, but I don't think their their version of worry is anything that like anyone that's not a billionaire could conceive of because it's not really a worry when you're a billionaire <laughs> in a capitalistic society, I guess is where I fall out. Yeah. Well, and they, they weren't, the owners were risking millions of dollars. Um, but that in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter for them, but I think it is important probably to register. You know, I saw a tweet this week, um, which is always a great way to start a sentence, right? Um, yes. Uh, but it was commenting on how someone just didn't understand Jeff Bezos that, you know, if I had a hundred million dollars or a hundred billion dollars, my immediate response would be to figure out how to solve global problems. Yeah. And that it's not for him is, uh, means that it's just incomprehensible. I think it's that way for all of these folks. And so I think there's this, it, it is worth noting that as much as they weren't really risking anything for their minds, they probably like, uh, they have nothing to risk. So in some ways, even the small risks feel uh, in more substantial in that mindset. So uh, it's an interesting play on like, yes, the owners really didn't need to do anything, but um, because losing face for them or losing a hundred million dollars feels hurtful, even if it's not, uh, it does make something change. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I don't have this completely figured out in my brain. I, I haven't even known how to talk about it exactly. But I think I have become kind of alighted to a part of this that I have to admit not fully thinking about or understanding. But I, I'm wondering about the extent to which if one is concerned about the business part of it all, that one can claim allyship and I think it popped up for me in a couple places this week. One was I listened to Doc Rivers and the owner of the Clippers interviewed by Trevor Noah, Trevor Noah. And the way I forget the owner's name. Do you remember his name? No. Yeah, I don't remember. But he essentially was using language that put him on the level of the players as in like he was considering all, I wish I could remember the exact phrase, but 
he was using semantics to make it sound as if he and the players are both employees of the same company. Hmm. And like, that's how they should be viewed. Whereas doc rivers was not using language like that at all. And I, it was also paired with, uh, I read this interview. Um, let me see if I can find it real quick, but it was an interview with Will Kane who, was a talking head on ESPN for the last few years that had kind of made a name for himself as being the voice of the right or a more conservative voice on what many are calling a too politically correct ESPN. (laughs) And I have this quote from here, but he said from him, uh, so Will Cain just left ESPN and he now has a radio show through Fox news. Of course. Of course he does. And so he says, um, this is the question is like ESPN being too politically correct. And he said, but there are times and certainly we are in one of those times where sports and politics are absolutely inextricable. In those situations, what I believe the audience wants is not a left point of view, nor a right point of view. What they want is an open forum to all points of view. When you only give them one and then when you take the next step and say the other point of view is racist or immoral, you box the audience out. You also tell them they're not welcome. And his whole tone is that like what the NBA is doing and if the NFL does it and if MLB does it, it's going to be like bad for the game. And it's like, man, if you're freaking worried about (laughs) the business of the NBA or the business of NFL, how drastic is the gap between what you're missing? Mm -hmm. Right. And, if I can keep going, I, I think another part of this, and I don't know if I'm making any sense. Like I said, I don't know if I have it fully figured out, but um, I I feel like there, are the players re- really in it if they're still part of the NBA, I think is a legitimate question to ask. And it, it's, um, it was brought up in, I'm going to, read some more quotes to you. Uh, It was a a review of Scoop Jackson's new book. So Scoop Jackson, a writer for ESPN, Undefeated, and a bunch of other outlets. His new book is called The Game is Not a Game, The Power, Protest, and Politics of American Sports. And Jay Caspian Kang reviewed it for the New York Review of Books. And Jay Caspian Kang is an interesting character. He's a Korean-American and kind of... I first learned out of him of Grantland. So he's kind of a Bill Simmons Mm. disciple, which I think is problematic in all of this space for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, A New Yorker uh, writer recently called Jay Caspian Kang a bro. And I was like, oh, that's exactly what needs to be said about Jay Caspian Kang. But at any ways, his ideas and his writing, I think is really amazing and um, in a lot of ways. And one thing that he pointed out in this review was a, a term that I feel is really apt and helpful here to kind of figure out where we stand on all this. But he talked about the triple consciousness of an NBA fan. And Mm. the way he describes it is he says it's triple consciousness, wherein the white fan confronts the blackness of basketball, but accesses it through its white power structure and uses that comfort to create a conditional and ultimately facile understanding of black people. And what he is saying is like, even after the boycott, even after what Kerr and Popovich and Doc Rivers are doing, 
it's still possible to sit here and claim allyship and have it not mean anything, I think is what he's lamenting. And he went on to make the point that a point we've talked about too, of like all the people of color that are working inside the bubble, making sure these players are fed and getting their tests and cleaning their hotel rooms for them. Um, so I don't know. I it just threw. It was like as powerful as the boycott is. I, I I found myself wondering, like, if these owners are still billionaires, what are we doing? Kind of thing. Maybe that's a dark view, but it just was something that was there. No, I think it's a uh, uh, a very interesting thought. Uh, you know, I think I, in some ways. Um, Right. So I think there's a, the underlying question here in my mind is, does everyone need to be an activist? Yeah. Um, and is it okay to just be a basketball player? Mm-hmm. You know, Sarah was telling me, um, uh, you probably saw this uh, because you're more plugged into these kind of things than I am. Um, but apparently there's a woman um, protesting at Adidas. Have you heard anything about this? I have not, no. So I don't know much about it. I heard this all secondhand through Sarah, who heard it through the Daily. Um, uh, and they were doing an interview with her. She had some stories about how she uh, feels like there's inappropriate culture and things happening at Adidas that are inappropriate. There's some stuff that I find strange, and I don't want to get into this because I don't know enough. But like apparently she's been protesting at work while still getting paid for like two months, which is um, – Okay, that feels strange to me um, while not doing any work during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also like my immediate reaction is you went to go work at Adidas. What did you expect to find when you went there? Yeah. Like that's – and I get it. You want to change it and you want it to be better and I, I can understand that. But if you're choosing to work in these uh, corporate systems, you're choosing to be part of a system that you have to know is destructive on many, many, many different levels. Right. Um, and so I, but at the same time, like if you are, um, if you're LeBron James and you want to be the best basketball player in the world, you have to be able to play the other best players in the world. Right. Uh, and the question becomes, is there, a forum in which to do that other than the NBA. And, you know, you could argue that he could now do that, but he probably couldn't have done that when he came into the league. Right. Um, and so uh, because basketball is that important, he's devoted his entire life to it. Uh, it's hard for me to say, you know, don't, don't invest in this space where you're, uh, you're judged to be the best because that's what you've been focused on becoming for your entire life. Right. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I think there's real stuff there about, you know, the NBA. And we see that that's, I mean, that's the crux of the China situation is mm-hmm. that, you know, they they can't condemn this or, or, or are refusing to condemn uh, the Chinese, um, which are committing real and prescient atrocities at every given moment um, mm-hmm. because of uh, how important that is to the league that sustains them. Right. Um and that uh, that's a really tough situation. And so I, you know, I'm not going to stand here and say that they shouldn't be participating, but it does. It's always going to be a limiting factor. And I do think what we're also seeing is, um, well, full disclosure, I've been doing a lot of thinking uh, uh, for my work at tech about systems thinking. Mm-hmm. 
these days. And it, it, it all leads to a lack of systems thinking in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the, there's this first level of combating racism, which is like getting folks to think differently about people of color. And then there's mm-hmm. this next layer, which is, uh, you know, the politics and the policy matter and all these kind of things. But there's all kinds of tertiary levels of, you know, the corporate structures that dominate America are uh, part and parcel of upholding this structure yeah. that exists. At the same time, they're also a lot better about promoting people of color than other places might be. They're a lot better. They have these diversity campaigns, but the very structure in which they operate is designed to exploit and keep people poor, which is always going to impact those people of color more dramatically than right. Uh, others so uh, you know it's um the system is just immensely complex and i always struggle with um how much is enough and uh um uh, well now i'm the one rambling but uh, i'm also going to go and talk about a little philosophical thing that i've been struggling with personally lately which is Camus. Mm -hmm. um so one of my favorite thinkers of all time i have immense respect for the way this guy viewed the world. Uh, even if, uh, as a person, he probably had a number of faults. Uh, he's never failed to make me think about things. Um, and he, uh, his book, the rebel, have you read any of this? I have. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there's this, there's this thought in there that any type of absolutism is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and that rings very true to me on several levels, but that also, you know, there's a, there's an implicit argument in there that, about the imperfectibility of society and that um, we need to be willing to take and, and fight really hard from incremental changes uh, and not, uh, not result to violence ever, um, which is, I find myself really compelled by, but also um, troubled by what that means for long-term stuff. Um Mm. In terms of how do we, uh, you know, it's kind of depressing to think that we're never going to create or that we can't create that. But then again, the the humility of that perspective, um, I find really powerful and it uh, it continues to resonate for me. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's kind of off base, but I feel like it, it resonates here in terms of, you know, can we um, can we fight really hard for and celebrate these small wins while recognizing that there's more to do? Mm-hmm. Um while also recognizing that um, we don't anything that we do that's going to vilify uh, and and be absolutist or violent, even in a mental sense, um, uh, is probably not a productive way mm-hmm. to go. No, I love all of that, and it coincides with so much of what I've been thinking about and feeling too, in the sense that. I think it is really important that we make a collective recognition as fans and not that I'm in communication with the NBA, but as a league and as players and laborers in that league and owners in that league and that all the actors within the system come to the table with a valuing of complexity, how much closer we are to maybe that like, non-violent, non-absolutist calmness that is the ideal that we desire. And so I think for me, it gets down to this point of like, okay, well, what's, what are our biggest hurdles in that space? And 
I think one of the hurdles is that Will Kane gets to keep believing what he's believing. And Will Kane, ha- in my opinion, and I don't want to argue with Will Kane about this because <laughs> that's how he would want to go about it. But I, I hear in Will Kane's understanding of racism or institutional or systematic racism a belief that you're only a racist if you're a member of the KKK. Mm-hmm. And I don't hear Will Kane admitting that he benefits from racism. I don't hear the Will Kane point of view acknowledging that the NBA in some cases appropriates blackness without challenging whiteness in any way whatsoever. That being the kind of like triple consciousness that Jay Caspian Kang was talking about. And then I find all of this to be illuminated by the fact that, and this is coming from a source, popular information reported this week that the NBA's top corporate sponsors have donated donated $3.3 million over the last two years to support the re-election of members of Congress who received an F rating by the NAACP. Hmm. And like one example is State Farm donated 220000 to 55 members of the House and 19 members of the Senate rated F by the NAACP. Hmm. And so you think of how many Chris Paul State Farm commercials we see while we're watching an NBA game. And that's, I don't even want to like knock Chris Paul on that. Like, that's like kind of what you were saying about the Adidas example is that what did you expect when you joined these corporate systems? Mm-hmm. And so I guess it's just like, let's be honest, let's illuminate these things and have all of it sit there in the messiness. Yeah. And I think I, I really uh, appreciate that. And I think that that's, um, you know, learning to live in the gray is vital here, but it's also a matter of um, learning where those leverage points are mm-hmm. to make changes and change the outputs of the system. And so, you know, I think now, there's a real argument to be made that Chris Paul has a power that he didn't have before to go to state farm and say that he probably couldn't have done that before this moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he certainly, I think now could. And so what is it like learning to recognize those moments and being finding those times? um, I think it's powerful while still, and and just recognize But, and I think if I were to take a step back uh, and be, the pessimist that I am. Um, I think that what we're obviously what we're talking about here is an immense amount of wishful thinking Mm -hmm. Um, because in large part, I think it's based on immense amounts of education. Yeah. Um, And that's just not. uh, uh, So in some ways I would just settle for individuals being willing to be educated um, on things. Right. Uh, Like if you're willing to hear conflicting opinions on things. If you're willing to engage in conversations in a way that you might actually change your thoughts, uh, based on what is happening. Right. Um, I think in some ways I almost settle and say, that's a good enough starting point to, to get uh, somewhere. Yeah, I, I can totally identify with that feeling. And I, that takes me to two different places. One is how much I, am beset by personally and frustrated with how knowing how difficult it is to teach someone about systematic racism (laughs) and how 
how much more, how difficult it is in a classroom setting over a school year. It's really difficult. So to teach someone that watches Fox News every day about systematic racism is just not going to happen. <laughs> like, right? I don't know if that's pessimistic as much as it's realist. Um, but that's just not going to happen. And so in that space, that acts is, for me, from my perspective, is a massive defense of the boycott. And so while I find it valuable for Jay, Caspian and Kang to poke holes in kind of all of this, I also am like, man, it, I come up with, uh, I, I may have mentioned this to you, but um, I, I came across a young person recently that, a, a young boy that is kind of being ushered into the same toxic masculine world that I was ushered into. And he was extremely intellectual as a young kid. And now as he gets a little bit older, he's like finding that he needs to like hide that part of himself mm. and where he is finding like social capital and social acceptance is in sports. And so like becoming obsessed with sports and memorizing who plays in the ACC, things I used to do when I was a middle schooler <laughs> because I got something out of that and how what what was pointed out to me about this kid is that the NBA is this like um, thorn in the side of all of that right now. Um, and I found that to be a really interesting thought that because the NBA is going about all of this uh, the way they are, they're setting themselves apart in that kind of pretty uh, ubiquitous norm that I think you and I uh, can relate to a lot for these these kids that are growing up in America and how sports operate in that space of the middle school classroom. And so for the NBA to be doing things like this kind of makes it harder for the kids to go just talk about the playoffs. They also have to pay attention to the fact that Black, Live, Black Lives Matter is written on the court while they're watching the game. And so to me, that's like a massive defense for that. Um, the last thing I, I think is like, standing out to me so much is like how much my questions about it all are so heavily imbued with white privilege that I can't even like ask the right questions. Um, and so it, I'm very personally in a place where I, I'm feeling like, gosh, I, I don't know at all times 10 <laughs> of like, I, I don't know what it means for me to say that I'm an ally right now, very personally. Um, I don't know where to go with those sentiments and those feelings fully right now in a confident manner at all. Yeah. I think that for me, um, I'm in much the same place and it kind of have just, um, and feel this way about a lot of things, um, that, you know, so the strike, uh, in many ways I wanted to see it, uh, continue. I wanted to see the playoffs get canceled because, mm -hmm. I feel like that would be the most powerful statement. But I think um, what I've also become very comfortable with in this context is just saying whatever whatever your goals were for this, if you feel like they've been met, then we can we can move on mm -hmm. to the next thing. Sure. Um, yeah. But there are certainly things that, um, you know, uh, there was a video that was going around about um, some Black Lives Matter protesters largely – white um going around dc um and absolutely berating yeah. individuals that refuse to um uh 
to raise a fist with them or whatever. Right. Um, uh, you sound, it seems sounds like you've seen it. Um, I have, yeah. Uh, and that's like, I don't approve of that. I'm okay saying I don't approve of that. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I'm not going to sit back and say anything is okay. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'm also becoming much more comfortable saying I don't, uh, I don't need to be involved and or approve of the outcomes of every situation. Right. Um, that instead I, I can find my areas of where I think I can be involved and, and lend some support there. Right. But um, yeah, I don't, uh, I'm not, it's, I'm not without opinions and I guess we can never be without opinions. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, uh, I guess I'm becoming more comfortable or hopefully becoming more comfortable and not judging people for the outcomes that they make uh, in these situations. Yes. Unless I feel like they're very harmful for the situation. Right. Right. Yeah, I feel like there's a big difference in telling Will McCain that he's saying, or Will Cain, that he's saying racist things and berating someone that's sitting outside a coffee shop for not being part of your march, right? That mm-hmm. that, that feels possible that we can make that distinction and that it's, it's valuable to make that distinction. And so in, in that way, if we're making that distinction, I, I think it ultimately for me lends a lot of credence and respect to the players for taking those stands uh, and for making it clear that a lot of these things are out of their control too. So I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think it's important to keep interrogating the NBA and how things are working within the NBA. I think it's also true for me to admit that I admire a lot of what the NBA is doing, even with all the China stuff, I still find it to be an example that we can look at and say like, okay, like this, this feels better than other options. Yeah. I think it, for me, it stands out as the best example. Um, uh, because I think that what, uh, and I'm going to give the NBA as an entity, some credit here and not just the players and say, um, it's an immense, uh, I think, good thing and how our learning experience for us all and how to live in that gray mm-hmm. um, in terms of there are, there are very harmful things about the NBA, you know, the ownership dynamics, the, the whole China stuff, all of it uh, very, very problematic. And yet their openness, uh, Adam Silver's willingness to listen. Cause I think a lot of this comes down to Adam Silver. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the owners being a more willing to listen bunch than other places, right. I, I think it's, uh, we can still celebrate and learn from that while pushing them to be better. And I think that's the, that's kind of the crux of where we need to be and where we hope to be. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad we got that all figured out. Yeah. I mean, we totally, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I often wonder if I feel too strongly about it all. Or like, cause it, it, it it was emotional for me to like, as I think it is for like so many fans that are asking these questions. Um, it's not just an intellectual exercise. I, I don't even know if it's worth saying that. Um, but gosh, these are real issues and it's an access point to these issues that I think is just so valuable in the sense that we're taking something that was 
taught to us, and I, I'm speaking not just for you and I, but for others that are asking these questions of like the MBA was taught to us as something that is where you go to relax and get away from it all. Uh, and I, I love that there are so many spaces now for us to acknowledge and pay attention to the fact that within those things that are meant to mollify us are the same problems we're trying to get away from. Mm-hmm. And gosh, that there's a lot of hope in that. I, I think, and we could have extended this to talk about the MLB joining in on some of this and how seemingly revolutionary that is. Uh, mm-hmm. And also hate on that for the same reasons. But I don't know. I, I think today after this conversation, I'm finding myself feeling hopeful. I don't know about you. Well, I don't know if I'm ever hopeful, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to do with hope sometimes. Um, well, you want to move on? Yeah, let's let's move on. Let's. Uh, what else you got on your on your list there? My other two can be really shorter, or, or can be shorter conversations. Uh, the first is I was intrigued by the me- Messi stuff, uh, that being Lionel mm-hmm. Messi. And so the story is here that Lionel Messi apparently told Barcelona that he wants to leave. Barcelona enacted a part of his contract that says he didn't let them know in time. He followed up to say that the, given COVID, I should have been given a few more months uh, in that space to let you know when I wanted to leave. But as of last night and today, it looks like he is going to stay at Barcelona for at least one more year. Mm-hmm. And I think there are plenty of things to approach in this conversation that are interesting. I think what stands out to me comes from a piece that was written in the New York Times by Rory Smith. And Rory Smith was making the point that Messi wanting to leave Barcelona is revealing of so much, mainly that he's essentially like completely upending his whole life. And for someone that lives in such a bubble and has had to work so hard to stay out of the public eye, which is seemingly impossible when you're the best player in the most popular game in the world, to want to kind of like put himself out here, like things must have really been terrible in the first place. But also it just highlights of how how cursed the best are in a way when it comes to like just wanting a livelihood. And these are not new thoughts. These have existed forever and they have been talked about in other places in much more eloquent ways. But I just was really struck by and have been struck by for years, the the amount and the scope of Messi's wealth and fame mm-hmm. and what it mean what it what does it truly mean for one individual to be the best soccer player, in my opinion he is, and to be the best soccer player at one of the best clubs of all time and playing the most popular sport in the world, in a globalizing world. And so it's almost for me that Messi has coincided with the most rapid period of globalization in human history. Mm. And so for me, if I'm going to talk about it in super dramatic terms, I'm going to say like his life is almost kind of like a microcosm of globalization of like, I, I, I don't know what it all means, but I think we'll look back on it and say like, gosh, that's probably harmful. <laughs> to to an individual and to all of us gazing at that individual. 
Yeah. Well, and I think uh, that's fascinating thing about it, particularly from the globalization perspective. I'm not thinking about like, you know, the flow, how he represents the flow of talent and uh, capital from uh, the global South to the global North. Um, And does he now represent uh, a shift potentially away from that? And yeah, fascinating things. Um, And I, I've been following it quite interestedly as well, just because it seems so weird uh, for Messi to be playing somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In a way that it never felt that weird when Ronaldo left, um, right, Man United or or Real, right. Um, so I, uh, there's so many components to it, but it, um, uh, you know, in some ways, I think it resonates back with our previous conversation in that what we're seeing is a, um, uh, what happens in some ways when the player becomes bigger than the team is, mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, in some ways the argument is that Messi doesn't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's all this stuff about, you know, the president of Barcelona offered to resign if that's what it took for Messi to come. But he part of the reason he's mad at Messi is because he's portrayed – or part of the reason he's mad at Barca is because he's portrayed as this kingmaker who's in charge of the club. Right. When he, that's not what he wants to be. And right. it's like this This was a savvy way for the president to, like, uh, keep himself safe in some ways by – putting the power in Messi's hands when it's not a power that Messi has ever wanted. And so in some ways, even though that's the result he wanted, he won't ever use the power because it would mean uh, changing who, what his role is, um, which is also weird. And I think uh, the other part that speaks to me is just how, how has Barcelona not fixed this at this point? Right. Right. Um, at this point, you've got, you know, he says staying around for a year. If I'm Barcelona, I'm, I, I'm changing freaking everything in that club. Right. I, you know, this, uh, there's some stuff that went around like before in the like 90 years of Barca's existence before Messi came around, they won like 43 trophies or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've won something like 36 since he's been there. Yeah. Um, and it's like, you know, they were a big club, but not like what they are now. Right. Before he came along. Yeah, I agree that like institutional dysfunction is a fascinating part of it. And kind of maybe to like summarize your points is I in a in a counter example or like I I just found myself thinking about what else could Messi do here and I I thought like what would it look like if Messi was like I want to go back to Argentina and play for like small minor league Argentine club near my hometown and I want to get paid $100,000 a year to do it and my goal isn't to be the greatest soccer player in the world it's to play and enjoy soccer professionally for fun and to make a living and it's like I that had me thinking of like the curse of it all of so he got signed by Barca when he was like nine years old or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like to be that great at something that is so exploitable and sellable, I don't know what you do with that. And that's that globalization part of it. Of like, it, In some ways, I think we could point to him and say like, this is the product. This is what you get when you like your whole system exists this way. And, I don't know if he's happy or not. Maybe he's like wonderfully happy, but <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It just raised all those questions. 
Well, yeah, I think that um, I think we can speak with some confidence that they're not very happy, um, and that that's what drives them on. I mean, part of this, the the main driving point behind Messi seems to be that he wants to win, compete every year for the Champions League, and that um, has not been happening. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's what drives all these athletes. LeBron is driven to get back to the finals and win again. Um, I think that having that that level of drive that you need to, to be there is always going to be, mm-hmm. uh, counter to being happy. Um, uh, that being said, I don't necessarily, like, I think it's important to know that I don't know that he, any of these individuals are responsible for how they feel about success in these things. Like right, I think right. it goes back to how they were raised and yeah. all of these other factors and right. stuff. But, um, I will throw out there that what I think, and there's there's some speculation that this might happen. I don't know how realistic it could be, but um, Messi growing up being a fan of Newell's Old Boys uh, in Argentina, mm-hmm. uh, and the idea, like particularly going back to your globalization point, which I'm just going to be thinking about all week, I think, um, is this idea of like, what if he were to say, I still want to be the best player in the world, but I'm now going to go do it in Argentina. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And totally subvert uh, the the norms of what we consider to be the best soccer leagues in the world. When I thought about having this be one one of my three things, but the players that the college basketball recruits that are considering going to HBCUs mm-hmm. is a similar concept, right? Of like, mm-hmm. how do you flip the paradigm? Well, you take that which is exploitable to the spaces. You, wherein you get to control the exploitation at least a little bit more. And I, I think there's a connection too to our first topic of like, I, there are other examples besides LeBron and other players like fomented this most recent boycott without LeBron's help or guidance. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it's the fact that gosh, going to an HBCU, if you're the number one recruit in the country it is a, seems just so inspiring to me um, as far as like taking power back. Yeah. Yeah. And so what if Messi mm. did something like that? That would be really fascinating. Well, I think there is some irony there too, in terms of uh, <laughs> that's essentially a path that's been tread by LaMelo Ball and the Ball family. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, uh, man, it was so distasteful the way they did it. That yeah. there's, uh, and, and the way these are guys are doing it just feels so much better. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, well pointed out. But what's your mm. second thing? Uh, so Tour de France is my second thing. Um, I've been I've been week. looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it all. <laughs> well, I I just have to say I've been loving watching it. Um, mm-hmm. It's made me really happy to have it to watch. Um, I think that that's interesting for me personally, from like a perspective of. I think I'd rather watch sports in the morning than I would in the evenings. Like in the evenings, I want to just relax and sports are not a great way to do that. So like morning sports are ideal. Um, uh, but then also um, just these, uh, the unpredictability of sports right now, I find really compelling, like both in the NBA and in, in Tour de France, like we don't have enough of a track record to really know what to expect for a lot of these guys at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like, uh, we're seeing that. I wouldn't be surprised if the Rockets knock the Lakers out. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, and who knows? In some ways, like, I'd be surprised, but 
uh, the way things are going, if the Nuggets knock the Clippers out, well, yes. okay. Yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's really fascinating. And so in the Tour de France, it's like ramped up because these guys haven't got that many miles under their belts this year. Mm-hmm. So like a number of them are carrying injuries. You know, we feel like Roglic is the favorite, but, um, you know, who knows at this point? So I, I find that really compelling. And it's also, um, I think one of the things I like about it, um, and this is for better or worse, is that there are fans there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on these mountains, there is a bunch of fans there. Mm-hmm. And I find them so stupid because of how they act. Um, and yet there's something different about sports with fans there that I think uh, I think it really matters for how I enjoy it. And, like, even though I'm watching it on TV, it leads to a collective experience uh, mm-hmm. aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also the element of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of these guys on the mountains, um, you know, I would say 98% of the fans are wearing masks, but 2% aren't. And the player, the riders have been complaining about that. Um, uh, and, you know, there's all kinds of complexities in that. But I think what, one of the things I'm most fascinated by is that tomorrow will be a rest day uh, and every rider and staff member on tour is going to get tested tomorrow. Okay. Um, and so that's like 600 plus folks. Uh and it's very unclear, like, what's going to happen if and when people test positive. Right. Uh, it's like there's this big race to have the yellow jersey for this rest day in case everything gets shut down. Wow. <laughs> uh, and, like, it's created all this uncertainty. Um, yeah. So there's that. And I think that leads into my third point, which I'll go ahead and give you as well, which is just the immense amount of uncertainty with all of this stuff. Yeah. In, in the sports world right now. Yeah. Uh, and how do you deal with that? It's like, you know, um, Virginia Tech, I think, was supposed to play NC State this coming, like maybe even yesterday or next week. I don't know. I don't keep up with football that much. But um, the uh, Virginia Tech coaches come out and talked about how, you know, coach uh, cases are increasing on the team. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, you're not giving us a ton of information, but that's a little unsettling. Right. And he couldn't really answer the question of whether or not they could play if they had to play this week. Um, Gosh. And so like, and we're, we're like a week away and there's no clarity on what's going to happen. If a team win a team has too many cases or like, you know, do they just have to play with backups? Do they, you know, not the uncertainty of all this, and then the scheduling component of it all, like mm-hmm. you know, so. There's some places that I said we're going to move it to the spring. There's some places they're doing, but I mean, it's just messing up everything. So the Premier League is starting a week from uh, yesterday, uh, and it's like, well, they just finished, right? And yet we're starting again. It's like this is like thinking about the NBA; they're going to be all off kilter next year with when they're going to be playing. And so this whole scheduling, there's so much uncertainty just in how everything is going to be handled. And it's, uh, I just can't fathom living in that every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I can't fathom that there's not one league or one organization that has just said, you know what, we're just going to decide something and let that be the decision. So, which is like, it goes back to the school stuff, you know, what, who's going to be, uh, brave enough to just say, you know what, we we might be able to go back to school and do it, but you know what, uh, we can be certain if we can be certain that we're going to do it online, then we can plan better and do it that way. Right. Uh, and who's going to be the league that's willing to do that? That's right. going to say, 
you know, when is, is the NBA going to be willing to say, we're going to do the entire next season in a bubble because it's the only way that we can really plan well for having a whole season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think they're going to do that, but um, like, is anybody going to be willing to do that and, and take the uncertainty out of it to some degree? Mm-hmm. <sighs> I first want to point out that I too love morning sports watching. It's so much better. I don't know why. I don't know if I, I actually, I do know why, but it's just better. Uh, so I wonder if we can somehow, uh, when we start our big marketing campaign for the podcast, say something like we watch morning sport, we watch sports in the morning, <laughs> something stupid like that. Um, well, so my third point is also about uh, uncertainty. And very specifically, I kind of had it couched as like, in addition to the uncertainty that COVID is alighting us to, meaning that this uncertainty is always here. And I think it's fascinating that sports is so often where we go as fans to uh, to just turn down the volume on that, right? That mm-hmm. kind of like hum of uncertainty that every human being that thinks about the world knows is there and how when there's a disruption in the source that is meant to make that less, uh, how there's, I guess I, I, I was getting to a place of like the mental health consequences of it. But it also, for me, was really embodied um, this week in the Premier League, cutting off a contract they have with this organization called Sunning Holdings, that they had signed a $700 million three-year contract to broadcast Premier League games in China. Mm. <laughs> and in total, I found that the 2019 to 2022 Premier League broadcasting rights agreements totaled 11.7 billion, and about a third of that was through uh, Chinese subsidiaries to broadcast games in China and Southeast mm. Asia. And it raises this question of like, not only what are we going to do about COVID, but what are we going to do about China? And Oof, yeah, it, talk about uncertainty. I I don't. I don't know. <laughs> and I'm going to join a chorus of a whole lot of others that say, I don't know. And while, while the road in one way feels simple in, in another way, I, I think it's uh, so complex. And so I, I kind of, I guess throw that out as a, a desire or a curiosity or a vow to hopefully become a little bit more educated on what folks are predicting, uh, what the next five, 10, 20 years are going to be like as it relates to not just sports in China, but what we can learn about an overall like global relationship with China and what the sports world is revealing to us that that's going to be like. Yeah. I, you know, I have to, I've been following this Russian poisoning thing right. recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been doing some research for another project on folks like Anna Politskaya, who were uh, assassinated. A lot of people think on the orders of Putin or someone else, or even Chechen rebels. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, but I think it's like, there's this fascinating difference that we're seeing come up. I mean, I think when we think about, 
countries around the world that are exerting massive amounts of influence that are also engaged in things that are uh, really unsavory. Um, you know, I mean, uh, the U.S. is on that list to, too as well. We should probably uh, comment. But the two at the top of the list for me would be Russia and China. But there's a massive difference in that Russia um, seems to have some level of internal strife. Mm-hmm. Um and like their their efforts to maintain control internally are there, and they do have some stuff. And we saw the Russian hacking in the election, all this kind of stuff. But that's that feels a little more soft powery than yeah. um, than what China is doing, which is just uh, it's staggeringly blunt. Yeah, uh, I mean, like we will not. You will lose millions of dollars. We will. Uh, and it's, you know, there's, I don't know if there have been risks of physical violence. I'm sure there have been in the country, but right. externally they wield this massive economic stick that is uh, really hard to deal with. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, it's, it's mind boggling. I truly, I, I, I don't know where to go with it all and look forward to kind of tracking down some sources this week that hopefully speak to these curiosities and confusions. I'm reminded of uh, a quote uh, or a a thought, and I'm forgetting who did this, um, who said this originally. It was one of these things we read as a seminal thing back from when we were in college, but uh, talking about how there's a theory that um, no two countries with a McDonald's will ever go to war with one another. Right, right. Uh, and it feels like uh, this is this is a really uh, powerful example of how geo conflicts are going to be very different moving forward. Right, right. I want to say that was Joseph Nye. He was a Clinton, okay. Clinton advisor that is really big on soft power. And I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I. Yeah. I, I just had like 12 thoughts, but we're an hour in, so maybe we'll save my maybe we'll hold my on. waxing no. on geopolitics for another time. Oh, man. Well, All right, man. Well, you got anything else this week? No, I, I think I'm good there. I enjoyed that. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for listening. Please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this, and we'll be back next week, hopefully. Thanks so much, Kyle. Thanks, man. To pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's nobody's calling nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikimpe Matumbo fan.